Hi, and welcome to the newest episode of the Towards.com Plus 50 series. This podcast is part of a short series produced to mark Stockholm Plus 50, 50 years since the Stockholm Conference of 1972. Each episode interviews an expert in environmental policy and diplomacy about how we can collectively achieve the implementation of environmental policies and build a greener and fairer future. I'm here today with Stephen Steck, who is the Senior Research Fellow on Environment and Democracy at the Central European University Democracy Institute, and Leda Reinhardt, Senior Advisor on Governance for the Stakeholder Forum for a Sustainable Future. So hi, Stephen and Leda. It's nice to be with you here today. No. Nice to be here. Thank you. And do you mind taking a minute just to introduce yourselves a little bit and your background? Perhaps, uh, Stephen, you can start. Well, sure. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, I now work in the Democracy Institute at Central European University, where I'm the lead researcher on environment and democracy. Um, earlier, I had worked uh, for a number of years in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, beginning with some legal assistance programs and then starting an environmental law program with an organization called the Regional Environmental Center for Central and Eastern Europe, which um, existed for about 30 years in the region. And one of the important areas that the Regional Environmental Center worked on was environmental governance, in particular uh, related to the Aarhus Convention, uh, which probably we will be talking about. And um, the Aarhus Convention was something I worked on from the beginning. I was uh, part of the negotiating team from the NGO coalition. And uh, then we did a lot of implementation uh, work on the Aarhus Convention uh, for a number of years after its entry into force. Thank you. Later. Yes, well, as you said, I'm senior advisor for a stakeholder forum for sustainable future. My background is mostly about, I mean, a lot of environmental issues like resource justice, ecological debt, uh, but also a lot on stakeholder participation in UN processes. Uh, that was since 2002 and Rio plus 10. And then afterwards in Rio Plus 20, I was the organizing partner for um, engaging uh, civil society organizations uh, in that process. And uh, now I'm also very active in the Nairobi processes. And this is one of them because there was the resolution 73-333, which I facilitated and is now the outcome document of UNIPED 50. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Now, I have a few questions related to your upcoming webinar on environmental governance and law. And the first question goes to you, Stephen. Mm -hmm. So my question is, what role does environmental governance and rule of law play in securing accountability towards the polluters? Right. Well, that's, a, that's actually a very interesting question. And maybe I would start by saying that when you're talking about environmental governance, you're talking about uh collaboration and cooperation and building trust between all sectors of society. It's, it's, all, uh, it's been a kind of um, um, accepted wisdom from the beginning of the development of the concept of sustainable development that societies need to work together. You need an all of society response to solve the challenges of global environmental change and uh, what does that all of society response means? Well, it means that all actors have to work together. They have to work together in a framework that is transparent, that's fair, that's participatory, in which there is attention to uh, to justice issues, 
in which there is compliance and enforcement and also uh, effectiveness and efficiency in administrative uh, um, um, in the application of public administration. So those are the kinds of issues that governance frameworks need to address. And um, countries have been working on this uh, in cooperation with the public and with other stakeholders uh, for, for decades now. And you can say that there's a fairly good understanding, at least, um, of what are the elements of, of good environmental governance, uh, which would, in, which therefore ensure um, um, ensure that societies do the best that they can to to deal with these problems. And you mentioned rule of law. Um, one of the important institutional frameworks for good environmental governance is to uh, back up the um, the things that I've spoken with. Earlier spoken about earlier transparency, participation, and justice to back those up with um, with legal procedures uh, and to have a rights based approach, which allows then um, accountability. Thank you. And to immediately follow up on that, another question for you. So, in the fifty years since Stockholm, what have been the main successes and obstacles in strengthening environmental governance and law? Well, I'm sure a lot of people would have different answers for that. It really depends on uh, what your, probably your area of expertise or your perspective or your experience. You know, one of the key developments was in 1987 with the development of the concept of sustainable development, which came from the Brundtland Report, Our Common Future, which included a number of principles and elements uh, which um, um, lead us towards uh, towards a, a more sustainable future, and among those elements, a number of them can be can be pointed to. So, for example, a lot of them have to do with the, um, the principle of prevention. So, prevention of harm, uh, and along with prevention of harm, how does that work? Well, one of the ways that that works is for there to be better decision making. Better decision making depends upon having more voices. And more um, more ideas, and to have a um, a clearer process in which view, viewpoints are are listened to and are taken into account. Uh, Rio Principle Ten coming up in 1992 was another major development. So Rio Principle Ten has been implemented in in a number of different ways. Uh, there have been a couple of uh, conventions or agreements that have been adopted. One in the European region called the Aarhus Convention and one in the Latin American Caribbean region called the Escazú Agreement. And, of course, countries have also adapted their legislation uh, to implement these agreements or sometimes just to implement Rio Principle 10 um, uh, without being part of one of these uh, regional agreements. And um, when it comes to information, for example, access to information, these provisions uh, work in two ways. One is uh, they require... Uh, public authorities to actively disseminate information. And now um, there's quite a lot of information which out, is out there, which the public can use uh, to better inform themselves about environmental risks and also to be able to make uh, decisions in their own lives about how to minimize their environmental impact and also uh, to, to take decisions which are uh, better for themselves and their families. Another way is through uh, information requests. And that's those are mechanisms where citizens have the right to um, to make requests to environmental authorities to provide them with information. 
uh, and and that's another way in which uh, the public can can take advantage of that to be better informed. In the area of participation, the process which is most um, most um, familiar and is most um, effective is environmental impact assessment uh, or strategic environmental assessment. And those procedures are where the public has a right to to get information about a proposed project or a plan, program, or policy, and to um, to give statements and to participate in hearings and to have their views taken into account. So those are areas in which um, the possibility of, the, of members of the public to to uh, to influence decisions and to influence also um, uh, plans and programs are um, are possible, and those are backed up by rights which are contained in the law and which allow which are the basis for people then to go uh, to um, judicial procedures if necessary in order to back those up. Thank you. Now I'll move on to my last question, which is for Leda. So, Leda, what opportunities are there for UNEP and civil society organizations to strengthen their work towards implementation and enforcement of strong environmental policies and law? Thank you. I think there are a lot of uh, opportunities. Um, I think UNEP is absolutely well-placed for taking a leading role in pushing and facilitating and monitoring the implementation of environmental uh, policies and the enforcement of environmental law, of course, Stephen already mentioned that uh, there are several things that are already there, uh, like the Principle 10, etc., etc., but in a lot of countries, the implementation is still lacking. That is always uh, the problem. I mean, there is a lot of environmental policies. There are There is international env- environmental law, but the implementation is not always uh, there. Um, I think that the UNEP at 50, the Ministerial Outcome Document, can be a key document for the UNEP Secretariat, to start working on more intensively be on strengthening the environmental policies and environmental law. They could, for instance, integrate that uh, in several tasks in their program of work, be it like a kind of daily work for them. There is a huge need for monitoring schemes, for instance, to keep really track of progress that is made on the country level. That is something uh, I think that's also asked in the uh, outcome document uh, for UNEP at 50. But that is something that the UNEP secretariat could absolutely um, uh, take up. I think on the side of the civil society organizations, um, often they are the bridge between international agreements and national implementations. Uh, this, for instance, often that the CSO, the civil society organizations, are pushing and are also supporting the concretization of the climate targets of the 2030 agenda, etc., etc. But this is missing often in a lot of agreements that are existing on uh, that are made in uh, in Nairobi. I mean, the headquarters of uh, of UNEP. Um, there is, as I said, a lot of existing um, on the international level, like biodiversity, but also the Principle 10. I don't think that a lot of environmental organizations do know about the existence of Principle 10. Um, and that is a very instrument, a very important instrument that you can use also as a civil society organizations to really push for better implementation and better impact assessment for the environment. 
Having better knowledge of what is happening in Nairobi is very, very necessary. Uh, I think that having liaison offices in Nairobi are very functional, could be very functional. UNIP is, by the way, the only UN headquarters without a presence of civil society organizations in liaison offices. Those offices could then be the, 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 the ones that are giving the infos, the updates, the advocacy channels to the region and the national levels. If UNEP would be strong and political enough, then CSO, civil society organizations, would also see the importance of being there and make the investment for such offices near the place to be for making this world a better place, environmental-wise. Thank you. And that was actually my last question. That's all that we have time for today. But this was just to give you a snapshot of what we're going to be discussing in the upcoming webinar um, for the Towards uh, Stockholm Plus 50 a series of legacy webinars. If you're interested in being part of the discussion, then I encourage you to register. The webinar will be on strengthening environmental governance and law, and it'll be happening on the Wednesday, the 20th of April at 4 p.m. Central European time. And if you want to find out more information about the other webinars that we'll be doing, as well as find registration information, you can find that on our website towards Stockholm50.org and on our Twitter at Stakeholders. I want to thank you, Leda and Stephen, for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you very much to you. Thank you. And I hope to see you and anyone listening to this on the 20th.